Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. Firstly, as you may notice, the audio is slightly different to how it usually sounds. That is because I'm recording this on holiday. I'm actually looking out over the sea as I record this intro. Unfortunately, I couldn't pack my usual podcast microphone. So that is why the intro is sounding a little different. The interview was recorded just before I set off, you'll be pleased to know. So is the normal high quality audio that you were used to. But just in case for regular listeners, you're wondering why this sounds a little different, I thought I would just explain up front. And so to today's interview, who am I speaking to? Well, today I speak with David Little, the founder and CEO of the TCM Group, the award-winning mediation, investigation, culture change, and leadership development consultancy. David has always been driven by the power of dialogue and its ability to bring people together. He put this passion into practice early in his career when he set up one of the first community mediation schemes in Leicester. It was a huge success, attracting lottery funding as well as national media coverage. 
this eye-opening experience showed him that people from all backgrounds with competing goals have the capacity to come together and create something positive. And it was this that led him to launch the TCM Group to help public sector and private organisations use those same approaches to build bridges between their employees. During this conversation, we explore David's fascinating career and the numerous insights he's learned along the way, including the power of restorative justice and how it can be used in the workplace to unlock benefits for both businesses and their employees. How listening to and understanding opposing views is the key to effective leadership and what people leading organizations need to think about if they want to get their teams on side when making large-scale change. And David's journey building the TCM Group over the last 20 years, the ups, the downs, and his advice for anyone thinking of following a similar path. At every stage of your consulting career, resolving disputes and overcoming disagreements is a crucial part of the job. And in this conversation, David shares some fantastic insights, experience, and knowledge that will help you if you are trying to manage these potential challenging situations and turn them into positive moments for your career, for your consultancy, and your projects. So with the intro over, all that's left to say is please enjoy today's conversation with David Little. David, welcome to the show. Oh, Nick, thank you very much for having me. Not at all. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. I know we had a good chat ahead of today, and I know we've got a lot to cover. We've probably got a lot to cover in quite a short period of time as well, because I know we're recording this just ahead of the bank holiday. And as we were just saying, we've both got rather busy days coming up, and I don't want to deprive you of your packing time for your family holiday. So I think, why don't we dive in, David, and maybe just to start us off for our listeners' benefit, who maybe don't know yourself, don't know the TCM journey, be great if you could just give a an overview of, of who you are and how you got to where you are today. Oh, fantastic, Nick. Well, um, yeah, so my name's obviously David Little. I'm the CEO of the TCM Group. So I began my journey into the work around conflict resolution, culture change, leadership development back in the early 90s, in fact, late 80s. I did a degree in race and community relations up in a wonderful uh college called Edge Hill College, which has now become Edge Hill University up in Ormskirk. And I was really passionate about discrimination uh, in all of its forms and also creating an inclusive society, which has then moved into creating inclusive and um, safe workplaces. So following my degree in community race relations, which was a real eye-opener to me, really interesting, learned a lot about the nature of racism and discrimination. I was president of the Students' Union for a year, which was fantastic. And then I came to work in Leicester, in the wonderful uh, city of Leicester in the East Midlands. And I set up uh, what was then one of the first mediation and conflict resolution and restorative justice uh, charities in the UK. And I became bitten by the mediation bug, I think it's fair to say. I saw the power of dialogue as a really powerful tool for addressing complex and often intractable problems within our societies. I was working with neighbourhood disputes, community disputes, gang disputes, and I found myself working more in in the criminal justice system, working with uh, offenders, and then subsequently with more serious offending behaviour. And in particular, one case comes to mind where I was working with the family of of a young girl who was unlawfully killed by her boyfriend, who then subsequently committed suicide. And I mediated between the two families prior to the inquest. And I thought to myself then, Nick, you know, if these two families can come in together and resolve some of their differences through through mediation, then pretty much anyone can. Uh, and that was really an eye opener to me about the potential and the possibilities that dialogue plays. And I've always been very passionate and very interested in looking in our organisations and society more widely, of course, and asking some really 
profound questions to some of our HR professionals, leaders, managers, union representatives and others about getting into a room and, and having a conversation with each other. And it seems to me that in our workplaces and, and elsewhere, we build walls rather than bridges. And we put systems and processes in place which inhibit dialogue and prevent people from having conversations. And so the last 20 years at the TCM Group, and obviously we'll explore that today, has been an opportunity for me to bring the principles of restorative justice, dialogue, psychological safety, mediation, sort of transform those transformative processes, as, as I described them, into organisations. And wow, <laughs> and what a 20 years it's been. It's been, it's been real, uh, the most phenomenal period of, of my life. That is a fantastic intro, David. And I think, like you say, we're going to go into the TCM Group in detail and, and how your early experiences have informed the the business, why you launched it, and, and the growth of it. I I feel that I I can't leave your your early story though without touching on it for for the reasons you've said and some of those you know examples you gave. And I guess just I'm really interested to know how those early days. You mentioned you launched the charity, so you'd come out of university. You know, you were I'm going to guess 21, 22, whatever you were. That feels like quite a big thing to then. Firstly, launch anything. So, you know, launching a charity first off and actually be going into those situations. So, you know, you talked about that tragic situation with the woman who was killed by a boyfriend. Takes, I imagine, quite a lot of oh, courage, confidence, self-assurance, whatever it might be to, to get to a place where you're willing to do that. You know, I remember my first job going into meetings with low-level executives in insurance companies scared the crap out of me. And, you know, you were just describing how you're doing trade union disputes and that sort of thing. I'd, I'd love to understand those. That might not have all been day one of the business but I'd, or charity, sorry, but I'd love to understand how, almost why you set your own charity up and, and what those early years taught you, because I suspect it's quite relevant when we come on to the, the latter part as well. Yeah, well, there, there was a little gap between leaving university and setting up the mediation service. And I spent that period of time working for the Leicester City Council through one of their tenants and residence groups, looking to engage what was called hard to reach communities, single parents, black minority ethnic and members of the local community in economic and regeneration programmes. I did that for about a year, immediately after sort of leaving HL. And it was actually that yeah, that to me was the big eye opener because I was going out working with some of the most amazing members of the community, listening to them, talking to them and looking to engage them in, in social and economic regeneration programs. But their experience of handling conflicts, whether it was between the members of the community, between neighbours or indeed, and this was probably more problematic between some them and some of the agencies that were there to support them, housing, policing, health, social services. It was dire. It was really dire. It felt that conflicts and disagreements within communities and within society were ignored in favour of more tackling more serious criminality or filling empty properties or gathering rent arrears. Antisocial behaviour, neighbour nuisance conflict, when by different names, was a very low priority. And as a result of it, local community members were experiencing the most extreme trauma and distress with nowhere to go. And it felt like a pressure cooker was building. And every now and again, the police would come in with their blue lights flashing and the sirens blaring and you know, just break up a drug den or, or go and arrest members of a gang. But it didn't feel to me that that was a particularly effective nor sustainable way of driving good community relations. So it was that period coupled, I think, with the degree, coupled with my time at the, at the Students' Union, that I saw the opportunity. And I found out some work that was happening in Bristol, actually. 
to promote mediation and restorative justice. So I actually went to Bristol to find out a little bit more about it. And it was that that began to seed it. And I managed to secure funding from the Home Office and the local authority. And a very interesting little story as well, which kind of, to me, was fascinating. I went to work in a housing office in Leicester and the housing manager there, really nice chap, but he said to me, look, you've got an office, you've got a phone. I'm your manager, but I'm really busy doing loads of other stuff. Said, kind of, don't come to me with anything, basically, is what he was saying. And by the way, I kind of think, you know, you've got a good idea, but it's never going to work. And he said these words to me, the people in this community do not have the capacity to resolve issues themselves. This thing you're doing will never work. And, you know, that's acted as a, almost like a driver to me for the last 30 years to prove him wrong. Because I think what he said to me is reflected in our organisation management systems, boardrooms, HR rooms. It's endemic. We don't believe people have the confidence, the capability, the ability. We don't trust them. But my experience was, actually, if we create the conditions for people to come together, we can achieve amazing things. We see humanity. We can see it in Ukraine. Humanity has the propensity to be be evil and to do terrible things. But humanity has the ability to, to do amazing things. And when the conditions are right for human beings to connect with each other, we can achieve the most incredible things. So to prevent people coming together because we don't believe they have the capacity or they don't trust them, that's been my life work to prove him wrong. <laughs> I probably put it that way. <laughs> well, I think a great motivator and, and it sounds like you've certainly proved that chap wrong. And I know we're going to talk about the sort of structural elements of the business, but I think there's actually a really fascinating topic in here around, you know, I, I don't like to make assumptions that everyone knows what mediation is. And I think to the example you've just highlighted there, I think we be it in society, be it in work, and you know, we'll come on to the sort of corporate side as, as you touched on, that challenge plays out all over the place, doesn't it? You know, the X group, we are at an impasse and the other group isn't going to come to the table, or we don't believe that those groups have the capacity to come to the table. It'd be useful, I think, just to to your point, almost get a sense of when we're talking about mediation, what it means to you and some of those examples you highlighted around the power of it because you know, particularly for our audience being consultants when I was in consulting I worked in unionized organizations and you had to always factor that in if you're rolling something out and you know that was just IT if you're doing change of working practices and things that obviously has another impact and I don't know how common this approach is and and therefore I'm really interested to understand more about it to help our listeners as well yeah i mean it's sometimes it's nice to contrast mediation with other things to start with and then kind of get a bit more granular on what what happens in the room and how it works so let's think about retributive justice so retributive justice is the preferred system of justice that permeates through uk justice models and retributive justice is about there must be someone to blame we need to investigate to find that that person where the fault is, and then we can punish that individual for that fault, whatever that punishment might be. And obviously within retributive justice, the punishment should fit fit the crime, so to speak. So that's the justice model. That's the prevailing justice system that works in our criminal justice system, civil justice systems, and, and of course in the workplace. So think about another justice system called transformative justice, where rather than saying that one person's at fault, one person's at blame, one person needs to be punished based on the balance of probability, that you're both right, that both parties have a set of needs, of interests, of goals, of aspirations, which are shared. Now, some of those may be convergent or some may be divergent. They may have some, some differences. The mediator's role 
is to help bring these parties together and identify what is common to them, what's convergent and shared in terms of their needs, goals, aspirations, and so on and so forth, and where the differences lie. And rather than focusing on differences and the diversity as a cause of adversity, what we do is we help the parties in a mediation process to identify their differences as a source of strength to gain insight, learning, understanding from one each other that creates a, a sense of togetherness and belonging, almost an unbreakable bond of togetherness and unbelonging between the two parties. So mediation is restorative rather than retributive. And based on the, 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 the role of the mediator who creates a safe space, it allows the parties to, to listen, to hear each other, to understand each other. We see the dispute or the conflict moving from something which is destructive and confrontational and, 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 uh, and harmful to something which becomes constructive, functional, healthy and supportive. So the mediator's role really is about creating that process, holding that space and creating the conditions for the parties to, to resolve issues. And, and, the, and the most amazing thing is, Nick, it really works. I think a really great overview and, and a really useful um, contrast as well. I guess an, an obvious question for me, and, and I'm going to try and bring this into the corporate example, because we will come back to sort of how you transitioned from the, the sort of third sector into, into the corporate world. But I think just to bring it to life for our listeners, how does that work where there is that asymmetry of power? So I, I guess, you know, I'm kind of making this example up, but you're implementing a large-scale change and it's going to impact your t your workforce. You can tell me whether it matters or not if there's a union involved, but there is an asymmetry of power. The The people at the top are telling the people below them they're going to do it. And obviously the people at the top have a vested interest for it happening and the people below them may or may not have a vested interest in it not happening. How do you, I guess, almost start to firstly get those people at the table and how do you manage that? Because that feels where the parties are equal. I can kind of understand that example you gave. I'd be fascinated where there is that dichotomy and that asymmetry of power as well. There's always asymmetry of power. So hierarchical power or structural power that you've described is, is a fairly obvious one because the hierarchy of the organisation sort of you know you get an organogram and you can see you can see the asymmetry. But there's power around knowledge, around charisma, around the networks that we have, the contacts, the resources that we have access to, and some of those are race, our gender our ability, the groups that we foster part of. So in actual fact, to, to an extent, the asymmetry of power, which is structural, is probably one of the easier forms of power to manage through a mediation because some of those other forms of power are perhaps less visible and, and less tangible than, than the way you've just described them. So let's assume that power imbalance is the norm. So the role of the mediator, therefore, is to create an environment where we can reduce or re address that power imbalance. And how do we do that? We don't disempower one person, we empower the other. So we treat the parties equally with equity through that process. We give them an equal voice, an equal stake, an equal say. I think what was really interesting in your opening narrative, Nick, was we will tell you how this is done. So that talks to me about an autocracy, command and control style culture. You know, digressing somewhat, let's look at the great resignation. People are rejecting out of hand that model of management and leadership as tell rather than show, force the agenda, I'm doing it to you rather than with you. That's being rejected in organisations. And I think for managers and leaders who are wanting to drive the changes that you were referring to, whatever those changes might be, a positive engagement, open and honest dialogue, driven by a focus on listening and really hearing and understanding 
it's going to deliver better outcomes through the change process than the model that you've described. And I think that's proven in almost every change management experience that, that I've ever seen. So mediation there becomes a set of principles and a methodology that can underpin how we lead and manage within our organizations, driven by a focus on compassion and empathy. And this isn't just motherhood and apple pie, um, you know, or just some nice to have. There are direct, clear business benefits from engaging with each other positively and constructively. I know we'll come to some of those, but it's that emphasis on driving business performance and individual performance and team and collective performance that I think is at the heart of, of, of what we're trying to do at TCM and, and, and promoting a culture of positive cooperative problem solving. Yeah, I, I really like the challenge and I, I want to come back to the forms of power and either I'll do it in a moment or, or maybe later, but I, I'm intrigued with that. I guess to the point you've mentioned, and maybe this is just you know, my my personal view of the word, so you can tell me if, if others hold it, is mediation has always struck me as a word that... It, has while a positive outcome a almost a negative connotation that you you have to mediate you know the the idea that there's something that's so bad it has to be mediated and i i'm really interested because the way you've described the the process almost makes it sound like something that people should just do no matter what in terms of you know and, and you're quite right david people talking to each other solves 99% of problems it'd be great to get sort of your take of and this might be how you do it now with the TCM group is how do you frame that internally when you're talking to both your your sort of client the buyer if you like and the the other mediating party because obviously once people are in the same room it's great but i imagine part of the challenge is getting them to agree to be in the same room so i'd be interested how you frame that because to your point it makes sense as part of a change project but i imagine if you saw a, a line on a gantt chart saying mediation some people might get a little scared Agreed. So I talk about a tripartite definition of mediation, Nick. I talk about mediation, the process. So the kind of we're talking about the process. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And to an extent, it's not until you've been through the process that you understand its true magnificence and its true power. And the emails I receive after mediation saying, well, why on earth did we not do this sooner? And it was nowhere near as bad as I thought it was going to be. And we should be doing this all the time. I've you know, got a pound for every one of those emails. I'd be a, a very, very rich man. So there's a fear, I think, is it medication? Is it meditation? Is this kind of strange hippie character going to come and we're going to sort of sit in a circle and, and, and make funny noises? So people don't understand what it is, but it's a very human thing. It's a very positive engagement. And we can talk more about the process, but it's also a set of skills and competences, listening, being curious, asking questions, creating a safe space, being respectful, not evaluating, being self-aware understanding the differences, drawing value and insight and, and understanding from opposing views. Now, have I not just listed a set of really core competencies and capabilities for every manager and leader in the organisation? So suddenly, those skills that I use as a mediator become really powerful drivers of effective management and leadership. But it's also a, a, a sort of a way of thinking, it's a mindset. So when there's a conflict or a dispute, or tension, or difference, or uncertainty, a quarrel, fight, a feud, a fissure, a disagreement, it goes by so many different names. But when this occurs, what's the mindset? And I'll just talk about the mindset of the individuals. I'm talking about the mindset of the, the CEO, the CIO, the CMO, the COO. I'm talking about the HR director, the chief people officer, the HR function as a whole, the union function. How's that mindset built into the social contract, the relationship between unions, management, 
and employees? How does that then cascade through the organization as a set of behaviors within the organization? And this, I think, becomes a really powerful expression of mediation. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this deeply. And the way that I brought mediation into organizations, Nick, is I took a hammer to mediation and I smashed it up with my hammer. And I deconstructed it into its most smallest fragments and then reconstructed it as a set of systems, processes, competencies back into the organization. So everything I say, everything I do, everything I am involved in has mediation at the core. I I call it the soul of, of TCM. But when we're working with organizations, the word mediation may never get mentioned. I really like that. And I think there's a frame there and, and a great piece of advice for, frankly, anyone listening. Of A lot of it comes down to, like you say, how, how you describe it in the name. Obviously, the outcomes are driven by those principles and the capability that you've got and your team have got. But you don't necessarily call it something that will make people get tense and worry. And I, I love your, yeah, is it, is it meditation? Or I'm sure you've had people ask you a whole host of things like that. I'll, um, I think actually, David, because I I always, as, as regular listeners know, I like to go off on tangents, but I like to try and bring myself back as well. And I, I think what you've just described actually takes us back quite nicely to the start of the TCM journey and, and almost what led you to make the move. Because as you've just described, the TCM group, you do this with large-scale organizations, executives in those organizations, where you started in your mediation charity, you're working with social groups, communities. What was the decision point? When did you decide actually... I'm going to take those skills that I've been using in the sort of charity sector and move into the corporate. And what led to that? And I asked that just because it's quite an unusual move. Those I know in the third sector typically are there for a reason and rarely want to move into what you call the private sector. Now, I don't want to put a judgment on you, but I'd be fascinated what led to that for you and and led you to launch the business. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really interesting question. The word conflict comes to mind, Nick. And there's a, there's an interesting sort of story in here, certainly from, interesting from my perspective. So I signed up to do an MBA at De Montfort University. So I took quite an entrepreneurial approach to running the charity, which wasn't everyone's cup of tea in the third sector. But I was the, the chair of our Council for Voluntary Services, Voluntary Action Leicester. I was involved in a massive transformation within Voluntary Action Leicester, moving to new purpose-built premises in Leicester. I was involved in various other projects and initiatives. I was the PR lead for our crime reduction strategy in, in Leicester. So I was very active in the community. So I did an MBA. And I also secured funding from the National Lottery to fund a programme called CRISP, the Conflict Resolution in Schools programme. And CRISP featured in the as a BBC One Life documentary made about it. It was the most wonderful project, training young people, pint-sized mediators in classrooms and playgrounds all over Leicester's schools to go and mediate. National Life Theory loved it. The schools loved it. The kids absolutely loved it. The local press were running stories on this stuff. <clears throat> so the National Lottery, for the first time since it was establishment, decided to, to fund us for a further three years to roll out a national programme for the Conflict Resolution in Schools programme, Chris. So I went to my executive board, my board, and said, great news, board. We have uh, the funding from the National Lottery to roll out the CRISP programme nationally for, for the next three years. And my board turned around to me and said, but David, our constitution says we work in Leicester and its environs. That's not constitutional. We can't accept the money. I was like, so at first I thought there was a sort of bit of a joke and I sort of tried to laugh it off. But then I realised 
that they weren't laughing. And as a result of that, there was a significant, as you might imagine, conflict between me and the, my, uh, my trustees, my board, who decided that our constitution was more significant than this one. And whether, what the motivation and intentions were, Nick, I don't know behind it, but my resignation was in the next day. And I remember sitting on a, uh, on a park bench in Leicester, in Victoria Park in Leicester, thinking, oh my God, what have I done? And it was that park bench, really, that I started. And I was very fortunate, a good friend of mine from Leicester City Council referred me to Hounslow Council and Croydon Councils in, in, in London. And I still work with both of them. If I do a lot of work with Hounslow at the moment, and they both invited me to come and do work with them around developing dignity at work and fair treatment programs, bringing those restorative principles. They really bought into them, Nick, which was fantastic. And also, I got a phone call from the cabinet office asking me to do some work at the cabinet office. And of course, this has joined the sort of Blair Brown era as well. So I was hoping one day I might get to mediate that big one, but I never did. But I was working at the cabinet office and in two large London boroughs, and I was invited to write a bit of a chapter for a couple of chapters for a book. I did my MBA dissertation on the Hounslow and Croydon experiences. I don't know, I got a feeling of confidence building inside me that there was something here. Just taking us back to the experience in the streets of Leicester when I was working there in the early 90s and that woeful, inadequate approach to dealing with conflict and disagreement in the communities. I went into some of the corridors of organisations, and I'm not just going to say Croydon and Hounslow, I was working across the piece, it was as woeful and pitiful in our organisations as it was in our society. And I saw the same problems slightly different, manifesting slightly differently, but people were being broken, relationships were being torn asunder. There was stress, there was anxiety, there was hurt, fear, harm. No one was doing anything about it. No one was talking about it. It just felt like it was a natural unavoidable byproduct of the way that we just deal with stuff in our workplaces it's not natural it's not unavoidable so i kind of i got a little bee in my bonnet nick and off i went <laughs> fantastic david and maybe because obviously you've been running the tcm group for over 20 years now it'd be great to do a bit of a fast forward through that journey and i'm you know there'll be lots of things we can pick up on it because I think when we talked ahead of this show, you sort of highlighted the first few years, you know, the, it just flew. The financial crisis was an interesting time. And then obviously you've had the sort of the decades since as well. And that's a huge question to say, summarize 20 years in, in any number of minutes. But you know, maybe let's start with that first section and take us on those early days of the business. You decided to launch it. You were, you're out, you know, winning business, building the team. I'd be fascinated around probably more so the building of it and how if at all that differed from the charity because the obviously the work you did was the same but i suspect when you're scaling a business i mean is it different is getting funding from the lottery for you different from getting projects from clients how, how did those early years sort of evolve well it's really interesting around that because of course running what was quite a large charity i was working with volunteers who weren't being paid there was no motivation so that real for i learned a lot about working with volunteers who are not not drawing a revenue so on one side of my, the charity we had People who were not concerned about money on the other side of the charity had all of these funding bodies who needed Excel spreadsheets filling in with size eight font. It could take weeks to fill in all these. And they were obsessed about every single penny that we spent. So it was interesting running the charity. There was a real kind of push and pull in terms of funding. And I actually, I'm not going to lie to you, Nick, I, I, I don't miss that at all. You know, every penny that we earned, I could spend that in the way that I felt was most appropriate. I wasn't reliant on funders and funding bodies to, to do this and I wasn't accountable to them in the, in the same way and yeah that, that's something I've not missed 
So it didn't feel too difficult transitioning across. Like I said, I'm quite entrepreneurial. I love sales. I love marketing. It's, you know, these are my real passions. So I was quite, quite excited about getting in and, and developing it. So yeah, that was kind of my first foray into it. I'm not sure if that's answering the question at all, but that was the... Yeah, I think it's a really interesting example. And to your point, David, there's probably more similarities than, than like, like with mediation, when you get together, there is more similarities than differences. And that point on the, the volunteers is actually quite a good one. How did that evolve? Obviously, when you started building the business, yeah, I, I don't know if so if you want to elaborate on it here, but we talked about the fact you've, you've got a mix of a, an associate model. So a lot of your mediators are associates, you've obviously got a core team as well. Actually, how did that if at all change anything going from what was volunteers who obviously have you know you have their own management challenges but are in effect doing it out of the goodness of their heart to actually then building that team and those associates and just particularly for anyone listening thinking of doing the same we'd just love to know you know any particular major i guess challenges or light bulb moments in those sort of first few years that let you have that accelerated period you talked about I mean, I made a lot of mistakes. It was, I think, trial and error. I guess the uh, the, the correct words are agile or iterative strategy. I think making it up as you go along is probably the most uh, appropriate term for like this. But what I would say is, at first, I was only appointing people, bringing people in because I needed them. And of course, in a charity, you would only have people there because you could only get funding because you needed them. But as you become more aspirational, I was starting to create roles, not based on need, but based on my future vision. And this is where I started to make some mistakes. I started to grow for scale before I'd started to scale. So I anticipated and being an optimist as I am, is quite a dangerous approach. You almost need to balance that. So I was driving the business with a sense of optimism. And in those first few years, it felt like almost everything I was touching turned to gold. People bought into the vision, the values, the principles, very heavily reliant on the public sector. You know where this is going. And I had a real vision for an organisation growing. So I had a lot of roles and I was based in Clerkenwell in London. And I think at the point where we hit 2010, which is when the financial crisis hit me, I was at around 25 full-time employees. I had a number of um, full-time consultants working in the business. I had a conference centre, a mediation suite. I was carrying a lot of overhead. And we were working just the case, but we're having to run hard to keep up with that. But we're doing some great work and had some great clients. The financial crisis hit, the public sector stopped spending, and that that house of cards began to fall down and it fell really quite rapidly in the sort of period in the financial year 21, 20, uh, sorry, 11, 12. And as a result of that, I started to see all of the things I'd built beginning to deteriorate. But then I got a phone call from a wonderful lady at BT, the HR director at BT, who said, I love your work. Can you come in and do what you do at BT? And I think that phone call was literally a lifesaver. Caroline Waters, she's now at the um, Equality and Human Rights Commission. I'll never forget that phone call. So I got the opportunity to go into to BT. And for the first time, all of the stuff I'd been doing, I could repackage it, reshape it and go into the private sector. Then Marks and Spencers contacted me and said, we really like what you're doing. Would you come into Marks and Spencers? And Arcadia Group contacted me, obviously Arcadia no longer with us, and said exactly the same. And what I found in that period was got to be one of the most stressful periods of, of my life and the business almost retrenching down to being back to almost a sole trader again. But all of the learning that I built up in those eight years 
from working with the organizations I could take to private businesses. What are the, the things that I felt changed about going into the corporate world? And that's when I began to work in the corporate world. It was a much greater emphasis on return on investment and bang for buck and business case and cost benefit analysis. And all of my work up to that point had been very assertion driven. It's morally and ethically the right thing to do. And of course it is. But what happened around the financial collapse notwithstanding the stresses and the, the strains, is I relearned my trade. I relearned how mediation could work. I began to repackage it, but then I started to measure and evaluate the bang for its buck. And that then opened up my eyes to a massive new world of thinking about this as a, having business benefits. And so that, yeah, it was, it was really the work I did with BT that saved TCM, I think it'd be fair to say, without putting too fine a point on it, Nick. <laughs> Gosh, that, that is quite a journey, David. And I'd love to dig into those just because you've been so honest to share them. And it is worth sharing, I guess, for our listeners in terms of where, just to fast forward before I go back, TCM, and we'll touch on it, but TCM Group's now, I think you said about 75 consultants, you've got uh, UK and US office. So, you know, there's a good end to this story. But I'd, I'd love to, just particularly that point, because that's quite a hard thing. If you've built over, I don't know, five, six, seven years, a team of the size you had, offices, Going to back to your, you know, just yourself, that's a huge shift and, and I imagine it was a hugely hard time. How did you keep yourself motivated and driven to push through? Because even with that call that came through from BT and said, look, you know, we'll take you, come and do some work for us. You know, we'd love to do this with you. I'm sure there were times where you just thought, you know, I've just worked super hard for the last five or six years. Bugger this, I'm going to go back into a job. How did you keep yourself motivated to keep the business going? What might, might have been, I imagine, quite a hard time. Yeah, I, it, you know, I'm not. I'm not going to be one of those people who says, "Oh, I never thought it never crossed my mind." <laughs> it crossed my mind. It crossed my mind a lot. But I knew I had something, Nick. I knew I had something. I knew it, it would work. I knew it did work. I'd seen it work, and I'd not. I'd packaged it up wrong. I'd been truly aspirational, and you know, I'd perhaps had a few coaches and mentors along the way, but I'd made a lot of missteps. But I genuinely believe in the power of failure, and I, and. That is a, a sort of trite message to others. That's a deeply held view internally, which is you've made a misstep, you've made a mistake, pick yourself up, crack on, do it differently tomorrow, do it better tomorrow. So yes, things got tough and I can only really hold my own self responsible for that. But I was learning along the way. And I think, you know, you could look at many organizations or entrepreneurs' careers and they're littered with failed businesses. And, you know, TCM didn't fail. It, it faltered, but it didn't fail. And there was a time I, you know, I will be honest with you, I did call in a lawyer at some point and said, look, let's have a look at the business. Do I need to wind it down? And well, it was an insolvency lawyer. And he, he said, yeah, we can get you a, what do you call it, a, a Phoenix company set up and you can walk away from this. And I remember as he walked out of my office, I said, I never want to see you again. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and, I, and, I, and I looked at the business and we had enough money owing to us and I had enough goodwill and we had enough. And I said, the phone rang. So I kind of, I think that was probably the lowest ebb, but it's not as low as a lot of people have been, Nick. And obviously, you know, post-COVID, obviously sympathies with people who are experiencing far worse than I did. So, you know, it was, it was a low point, but pick yourself up, dust yourself down, believe in what you're doing and crack on with the job in hand. And that's what I did. Well, I think, you know, all credit to you, David. And and like you say, I mean, it, it's refreshing to hear the honesty and you know, I think the the result has, has proved out you were right to to keep going. And 
you touched on there, you know, that failure point, and I completely agree. And, you know, you, you learn from mistakes probably more so than, than things you do well. While it was, it was a naive view at 25, I always thought that if I wasn't making mistakes, I should be the managing partner of the firm. Um, I've now learned there's, there's more nuance than that, but, you know, the premise still holds. And I'd love to know growing the business back to where it is now and, and everything you've done over the, say, the last decade or give or take a decade. What are some of those, I guess, lessons you had from call it TCM? Uh, my words, you can you can correct me. Sort of TCM version one that you applied to TCM version two to give you the growth you wanted in a, and and make sure you, I guess, avoided the pitfalls that came with the first iteration. What are some of those key learnings? Because I imagine for our listeners, either mid-flight with their business or thinking of starting one, those will be phenomenally valuable. I don't know if you've seen the Only Fools and Horses sketch with Trigger and his broom. And he loves his broom, and it's like his his twentieth handle of the fifteenth uh, head for the broom. I think TCM probably is more like Trigger's broom than it is Phase One. If I'm honest with you, uh, Nick, what have I learned a lot? I learned certainly for mediation. So mediation is a contingent service. It's contingent on a lot of factors that occur within organisations, factors that I have no control over. Now, I'm, I'm a mediator, but I'm also privately, but don't tell anyone, Nick, a bit of a control freak. So, you know, in the nicest possible way, I like to have control over what can I pay for my sort of, you know, putting food on the table. And I realized in mapping organizations to get a mediation to come to TCM required a lot of circumstances to align in order for it to happen. And that means I'm out of control of the services that I'm delivering. So I made a conscious decision to move from a contingency-based model to a more sort of transformative model where I'm actually selling services into organizations where, uh, against a need that they have that I can then fulfill that need within the organization rather than waiting for this mediation request or another request to come in and that made a really big difference it changed the way that i worked with organizations from we're here to help you resolving this issue to how can we partner with you as i said earlier to bring those principles the philosophy the mindset the behaviors the systems the culture the climate into your organization and actually as the business retracted and retrenched and as i began to think more deeply about the way that i thought business we could promote our, our consultancy services we moved to then a contingent labor market we had consultants delivering the services which freed us up massively but that was you know um, to all the credit to the, to the to the people who used to work with me in tcm v1 v2.0 i was able to attract talent that i just couldn't attract onto the payroll so i suddenly was finding i was attracting more talented people into the into the organization as consultants who you know, some have been with me now for many many years i was attracting better customers with better quality conversations and i wasn't so reliant on the phone ringing from bt if i could go back to that i was more in control and i felt that i started to develop a strategy in the company where you know, again we were building those long-term partnerships with customers and that's quite interesting i mean as, as we go now that that partnership with our customers and our partnership with our consultants the lines are really blurring and we treat our consultants as customers we treat our customers as, as partners so there's a really interesting blurring at tcm around consultants and customers but that's maybe something to explore further i'm gonna have to jump on something that's teed up as well as that david so so please carry on because i'm not quite clear how that works and i'd love to find out how that sort of ecosystem has evolved and, and i guess the benefits to your business as a result sure 
So, so TCM, so I was trying to cram a lot of stuff into this thing called TCM. So TCM stood for Total Conflict Management. So that's a bit of a mouthful to start with. So I drew down Total Quality Management Systems and some straight great stuff coming out of the States called Integrated Conflict Management Systems. I mean, goodness me. I mean, I like marketing and sales, but branding's clearly not my thing. So I suddenly created this business called Total Conflict Management or TCM. And then within TCM, I was squeezing more and more stuff that we would do. We do mediations, we do training, we're going to do HR processes, leadership development, management development programs, courses, coaching. Da, 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 da. So we had consultants within TCM who were delivering all of these services, which is working really well and customers obviously who were using us and working with us. But I realized it was starting to become a very full house. We we're all squashed up and it was very hard to think. There was no headroom in the space. And it was getting quite confusing. Our website was a bit of a mess and our, um, our yeah, the whole thing was a bit of a muddle. So I started to disaggregate or break down TCM into some of its core parts. So what I've spent over the last um, couple of years, Nick, is taking TCM and creating a series of what we call satellite brands within an ecosystem. So I've got the mediation company was the first, the investigation company, then we established Engage Coaching, Engage Leadership, Resolution Framework, which is our HR sort of arm, Transformational Culture, which is my book, and also uh, the, the, the culture change arm. So I was, and I would only create a satellite brand if I could get the .com, .co.uk, and .org high-level domain. So I get the high-level domains, create a website. And suddenly what I was able to do was to create this branding ecosystem within TCM that had a variety of customers and consultants working with each of the brands that would then feed into and feed off each other. So what I mean about that blurring of the relationship with our consultants and our customers is that our customers really stay, they stay with us in the same way as our consultants do. And we build these really long-term relationships where we all both becomes, I don't want to use the term family because that's probably not quite the right term, but we get to know each other at a very deep level and become a, a real partner. And then the consultant becomes part of that. And we've realized at TCM that the way that we work with our consultants is they are consuming TCM. They're customers of TCM. So we treat our consultants in the same way as we would treat our customers, because whilst our customers are paying us and we're paying our consultants, take that out of the equation. It's how we treat each other, look after each other, partner with each other. And so those lines have been blurred. So what we found is, you know, only yesterday I was onboarding an HR director who before the end of March, before she retired, was was one of our customers. Another one of our customers who was an ER manager in a large five-star London hotel joined us as a consultant. She's now one of my strategic leaders. So our customers have become our consultants. And our consultants, when they've gone on perhaps to do other things, they've taken us with them and we've been customers. So there's this real fascinating blurring around the edges of the relationships and it's very much around our values and our ethos and how it all knits it together. I don't know if I've explained it very well. I think that particularly that point around the, I guess, the longevity and you do a good job, people take you with them and that might be clients come to you as consultants or vice versa it makes a lot of sense. And I want to pick up on, because it, it's actually, I think, from the podcast guests I've had on, quite unusual, David. And that's why I'm, I'm always interested in what's new, what's different. And your point around satellite brands is one I'd just love to understand a bit more about. And to to set the scene about why, I've had a lot of guests on the show, and I know a lot of consulting firms who common orthodoxy is to create, to keep your consulting firm as, as a brand, because the brand value is there. 
And as you grow, particularly, and I'd be interested maybe later how you've approached the US, for instance, but building that brand, that brand name, that brand presence that carries you across. And what we do is marketing for consulting firms and helping people raise the profile of that brand. And I'm really interested to hear that you have almost taken a kind of contrarian approach and created these satellite, you know, these, these smaller brands underneath the group. And I guess the question is really because how do you manage that in a way that's additive to your business and and doesn't subtract because, you know, you say, oh, we're, we're TCM and they say, oh, is that engaged leadership? Oh, I've not heard of them. You know, how do you manage that in a way that gives you what you obviously have of clients that come to you for multiple things, not confusion around what it is you do? Yeah, it's a great question. I love it. I absolutely love it. I mean, it's a really enjoyable space. And I've got a fantastic marketing manager, Matt. I've got Aubergine, who are our design agency, who absolutely uh, love working with them. So I hope that's okay mentioning that, by the way. No, so it's, a, um, it's a consulting podcast. Yeah, it's not for so, business. Uh, so, that's so, absolutely fine. So you that, may or may not bleep out their name later. Yeah. <laughs> but irrespective of that, it's great. For, I, 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 the reason we've done it, the reason it works, is we have two arms of the company. As a mentioned before there's the one where you have an immediate problem that you need a solution then we have this other arm of the company where it's about philosophy practices quite structural systemic and cultural change that's the new side of the company so if you think about a gateway service a mediation investigation or coaching of the obvious gateway services that we have into tcm you come into our ecosystem with a gateway services which is well developed through the investigation company or the mediation company or engaged coaching and you access a service which solves a particular problem and then the eyes light up the the ears prick up people go oh i didn't realize that worked as well as it did but we're dropping and dripping all the time content to those people so we create a website as soon as you contact us we create a website for you so the website we create for you provides all the information that you need to purchase X, Y, or Z service. But around the edges of the website, we are constantly dripping in and feeding in additional information to you as you're connecting with us. So we're drawing you into our ecosystem, building brand familiarization, building brand awareness, answering some of those questions, oh, I didn't realize you did that. Great, watch this video, read this FAQs, read this blog, read this book. So on and so forth. And we also have constantly consultants feeding into this ecosystem as well. So it's not David Little. You may not see me, you probably will, but I'll be probably in the background in the ecosystem just drip feeding into it. So you've got the subject matter experts or thought leaders. So you could describe it as a thought leadership strategy, but it's beyond the thought leadership strategy. So the subject matter experts are dripping and feeding content into the ecosystem. So as you come in, to the business you're being exposed to these quite subtly these brands you're then receiving the service that you've purchased and then you become a customer and we then map to really forensic detail that customer journey so we are constantly looking at what that customer journey is how it works and ensuring that the 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 ecosystem which i apologize to your listeners for overusing because it's such a jargony word but there is no other way of describing it. So we're looking at how we track you through the ecosystem. And so, I mean, an, an obvious, I mean, it's a kind of fairly obvious example, but I'll just give you an, an, an example just to illustrate the point. You're an HR director. You've never heard of TCM before. You're going to buy a mediation from the company. We set up this website for you. And then one of our coordinators says, oh, hi, HR director. Did you realize that David's written a book on transformational culture? 
Well, can I send you a complimentary copy of the book on transformational culture? There are some toolkits on the transformational culture website, transformationalculture.com. Just mention it to you now. Would you like a copy of the book? I'm sure David would love to have a chat with you. So you've come in to buy a one-day, two-day consultancy work. We're now dripped in to that conversation quite early, but quite subtly. There's a book, there's a website, and that potentially could be a massive piece of work. So it's an obvious example because not, they're not all as obvious. They're sometimes more subtle than that. But we're constantly feeding that relationship and nurturing it and supporting it. And that's I'm obsessed about that. It's, it's the thing I'm thinking about all the time. How can we continually evolve and nurture that customer experience in the business? I think a really interesting area to explore, and we'll spend a little time there, David, because obviously this is this is an area that I get quite interested in doing what we do. Just before we go into it, just to help me understand, and it might have been a terminology thing, or it might be might be worth exploring. You mentioned you build a website for each person who comes in. Is that every customer gets a portal? Is it just so I can understand to take my questioning to where I do it? You you have specific corporate websites for each of your brands what is that sort of bespoke website you're talking about so it's a think of a wordpress portal so we have a, a wordpress portal but it doesn't look like a wordpress portal it looks like a, it is a wordpress website so we would create for you a website you'd have your own login details your own password it's it's bespoke to you so it would have your details in it it would have imagery relating to your company uh so it is for client as opposed to sorry so that helps play so it's for if a client works with you this is their their hub if you like their tcm exactly or that's exactly got you. right it's a yeah, it is a hub it's we call it we call it the consultant zone got you no that, I don't that say the really customer helps. zone. sorry forgive me the customer zone that really helps um where i was going to take the the sort of questions which is actually around i guess where you learned that approach and how how you've seen it work and the reason i asked that is you know what you've described there is kind of the internet marketing approach if you like and it's you know it works of give the right content to the right people keep messaging them share the right things with them i'm very conscious in our space you know when you're dealing with corporate executives you know when i have conversations with prospective clients the amount of times i've been told x won't work because y is a busy executive and won't won't read this or won't look at this and doesn't doesn't care and you know something we obviously help our clients do is is bridge that gap and a lot of it comes down to what you share not not sort of the volume but I'd be really intrigued how that's worked for you and just to understand where that came from. Because as I say, the common approach with big corporates pre-COVID was wine, dinner, and conferences. Obviously, you and I know the power of digital and, and what that's done for your business. But where did your, I guess, appreciation for that come from and how have you seen that play out? You know, What have the results been from that approach for you? I think there was a number of factors. I think the first factor was consistency and standardization at point of sale. So does customer A receive the same information as customer B and customer C? And how do I standardize and have a document management system that can control the quality of templates at sale? And you suddenly find that you'd have person A using sales template one, person B using sales template two. So there was a lack of standardization. That also made it really hard to continually improve because if you haven't got a solid baseline to start with, how do you build from the baseline if you're constantly trying to standardize so standardization in a complex ecosystem was difficult and then what i started to see was emails going out emails that i was sending out and my colleagues were sending out with one pdf two three four five six pdfs links to this links to that video to this youtube for this and suddenly before you knew it the prospect was receiving you know an, an email with literally 10 attachments massive information in the body of the email 
and it was that that started me looking at saying that this this isn't right and i think i probably had a couple of experiences where i was buying services which was just a little bit slicker than that so i looked at books like sticky marketing and started to look at uh, this kind of whole e-commerce space and digital environment and i had a very good friend where i lived originally in, in mortlake in london and he ran a digital company and we just was we're talking and he specialized in wordpress stuff and he started to say well actually we could perhaps solve some of these problems in this way by doing this which is where it kind of started so uh, we have different zones we have a delegate zone a customer zone and we also have a consultant zone for all of our consultants and they're on about the fourth version of their development now and yeah so the next stage of those at the moment it's a one-way system so we're giving information to you you can't give information back to us so we obviously have salesforce and pardot and zero and all of the digital tech you would expect but I'm, those systems aren't connecting through the WordPress platforms. So we're now bringing all of those in and looking at some really cool tech tools for, for interaction. And some of the apps that are out there now are just unbelievable. So that's phase, like I said, we're on phase four now. It sounds brilliant. I completely agree with you on the sort of tools that are out there. It is, it is quite amazing when you dig into it. And to your point, your, yeah, your clients, your delegates, your prospects can't feed back in the systems but the fact you're on version four suggests this has, has been a fruitful activity. And a bit to sort of my preamble around you know, the executive buyer and that just, I think, sometimes misconception in our industry that you know, it's a cliche that I think was true at some point, but has become outdated. The old executives are too busy for X. I just love to know what feedback do you get? Do the CEOs, HRDs, CIOs, the people you mentioned, do you get feedback saying, we love this stuff? Do they tell you they're too busy? I think just for, for our other listeners, because we get, David, listeners like yourself who run firms, I'd love to know, you know, from someone on the, the front line doing this, what is that feedback you get from your, you know, from your clients, your prospects in relation to that? So 99% of people love it. They can access it on their mobile devices. You know, people are consuming information in bed before they go to sleep at night, when they're at the breakfast table, on the train, wherever. So... You know, it makes it much more accessible in that way. They're not having to plough through loads of PDFs. They might be speaking to three or four companies to get quotes. You've got one company which is just providing you with a very simple portal where everything sits. It's set out. So 99% of people absolutely love it. 1% say, actually, I need to share this with my board and they're, they're going to do this. Great, we'll just convert it very quickly to PDF. That 1%, you get a PDF because that's what you've requested. But it's literally as small as 1% of people who receive it would want it. And it, you know, as long as you can convert the information to a PDF quickly, which we can. I was just looking then as we were talking, the software app that we're looking to integrate now is Intercom. And uh, looking, I mean, that looks really amazing and powerful in terms of that two-way traffic with our customers and also beginning to hold us to account in turn in terms of following up. So so I, I, I couldn't remember the name of it, but it's Intercom. No, thank you for that. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to dig into that. You touched on it there. So I think I've, I've got the answer, but just again, to really draw it out, because the, the question I always get for marketing is, you know, show me the return on investment, show me where money in equals money out. And you touched on it there with the point around when someone's looking at quotes, they might have three or four vendors. Have you done any analysis on that side? And, and do you have either you know, hard stats or kind of anecdotal examples of where actually that approach you're following and that portal has helped you win business? No, I, I, I mean, I kind of, I, you know, obviously on a 
but on a podcast, I don't give give everything away necessarily. But I, I think I'll just describe it as my secret weapon. That's all I'm saying. You know, I think there's a, our cost of sale is very very low, so I don't need a sales. Team. So I used to have a sales team in. In fact, it was in the post financial collapse era, and actually having a sales team in my business was was really problematic. And I, I don't know if that would be useful for, to explore because I, I think actually very much just because. I think it's always an interesting question. A lot of consulting firms I know have a partner model, but I do know quite a few who have moved to a sales team model. And I'd be fascinated, yeah, as as you've had some learnings about it, why did you move to it and away from it? So I did move to it and I, and I moved away from it pretty quickly as well. So I had a sales team of four, including a sales manager and, and three sales colleagues. And it became one of the most difficult and potentially divisive functions in our organization. So. What happened is everyone in the business was responsible for sales as they are. I mean, that's the rule number 101. What if I learned? Everyone is responsible for sales and everything you say, everything you do, every letter you write, every invoice you send is a sales document. So suddenly you have a business where everyone's responsible for sales and suddenly you divert all of that into a sales team. And that sales team are conscious about selling and more often than not, that's driven by a desire to secure commission at a at the end of a period, be that a month or a quarter. So you'd find this real distortion within the organization that everyone else who was good at selling suddenly isn't selling because sales are doing selling. All of the reward for sales went to the sales team, which then completely undermined everyone else's efforts to answering the phone promptly, being polite, being courteous, get information out. All of that sales, by the way. So all of that stuff was no longer included because people didn't yeah, it wasn't included in the commission, so it wasn't valued. So that, that quality started to, to drop. And then we'd have this a function within the organization which drew all of the energy and all of the attention because everyone wanted to do the deal in a particular period. So everything became the sales team rather than the team. And I realized it took me about two years of having a sales team in the business that this was a really, really dysfunctional fun- part of our company. It was dra- dragging us down. So what I did is we removed the sales team from within the company and went back to how we were, which is was everybody was selling. But what I said is actually I, I got into the idea of paying commission, which I didn't used to do. So I said, okay, well, rather than just paying the sales team commission, why don't I just hive off a certain percentage of my total revenues, equivalent to what I pay a sales team, and just share it and distribute it equally across the business so everyone gets a cut. Not an equity scheme, so not something like vested, but something along those kind of lines that everyone had skin in the game it was the best decision that i made really it motivated people it allowed people who are non-sales people which are probably is everyone but everyone's responsible for sales which is everyone to suddenly realize that everything that they did was selling and that all began to contribute to the success the financial success of the business and what it also did and this was really useful for me as a manager was with the sales team, you constantly felt you were managing sales performance and trying to drive up sales performance. I was reading book after book after book on sales management and sales performance. But because within the team, everyone received an equal share or an equal element or, or, or value, they supported each other. If one person dropped back a bit, someone else would run over and help them. It built a culture of collaborative working and reduced the amount of management I needed to do because it became self-managing because everyone wanted to achieve success so no one wanted to be left behind so it took pressure off me as a manager of having to manage performance so not only did it have 
numerous benefits, but had this amazing benefit of unifying the team, not as money grabbers or you know, trying to just, just get the bottom line in, but driven by a focus on success that then would be measured in what they received each month. So the bonus is paid every month. They get the month, they get every month, they get the bonus for the previous month's revenues. And um, yeah, I've never looked back. <laughs> I think a really useful story. And, and it reminds me, actually, there's a, a consulting firm I know. They have been on the show, but I, I won't say who it is because I don't know how public the scheme is, who do something quite similar. And they actually do it by, you know, you get an X percentage if you introduce or win a project in a current client, and you get a Y percentage if you win a new, you know, a new badge, as we all call it. And when I was speaking to one of the partners from that firm, you know, what you've described as the sort of outcome, I think really resonates that everyone feels ownership, whereas I think there is an inclination in our industry because because consultants are, you know, we're knowledge workers. And for those of us who grew up when we had house phones, I, I distinctly remember, you know, the gas man calling to sell you a tariff at 6pm and being shouted at because it was dinner time. And that sales connotation, that negativity around it can lead to having sales teams. And to your point, I think sales teams are incredibly powerful in the right situation, but need to be treated quite carefully in the consulting industry. And and I think there's also an element of, which is probably what your marketing is trying to solve is in an expertise led sale, you need the expertise. And that doesn't mean salespeople can't have it, but you need to be an expert like you are in mediation to explain it to a client. And that's where thought leadership can be so powerful. You know, the marketing you're talking about, because it, it can do it for you in a way that's quite hard or, to train someone who isn't from that industry. I don't know, I don't know if you'd agree or if that's Absolutely. what you found. hundred percent. And so I think, again, it was another distort. It was a great point you've made because it really did distort it. Because again, the sales function needed to call upon the subject matter experts. So when I had my full-time team, they call upon the subject matter experts, but they weren't necessarily getting the commission from the sales process. So it was, all, it was almost there was this sort of strife and conflict, given that we're a conflict management company, the irony is not lost. You know, it was almost structural and I couldn't watch that happening without taking action. And I guess the other point on it is that, so we don't have a bit where you receive X for, or Y for, it's, it's exactly the same. It doesn't matter whether you're on this amount of salary or that salary, you get exactly the same. It's completely democratic. It works on the basis that the person who answers the phone plays as important a role as the person who sits on the board. Uh, so so it is a profit, just so I'm clear, it, it's kind of a profit share rather than, uh, you know, if I won business, I'd get £1,000. If you won business, you'd get £1,000. Much more egalitarian. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's, it's revenue share, not profit share. So it's a share of revenue. And so it's, it's. I mean, obviously it's a share of profit, but it's a, you know, it's, if we're not making a profit, then it's, it's not going to work. But, you know, but it, but it's completely egalitarian. There is, there's just one bonus. It's the same that's paid to everyone. And it means there's no arguing. There's no, I did this better. Or actually it was me who contacted him on LinkedIn first or, you know, it was, it was my article that they read that opened the door to that, da, da, da. none of that. It's all, we're all in it together. We're all in it for the same purpose. We have a common shared purpose. That's phenomenal. No, I think I think really powerful. It is actually something, you know, we, we have a similar structure for the same reasons is, you know, sales is the same as delivery is the same as everything else, you know, same as HR operations. If, if stuff isn't done right, you're not going to deliver a great service to your clients. You're not going to grow. And I, I think it's really interesting to hear that journey you talked about and actually the i think sometimes hearing others go through that will help people listening quite a lot because it can i've run into quite a few consulting firms where the answer to a lack of growth is a salesperson and i think sometimes that can be yes in the short term but i think you've your story has really highlighted where you need to think very carefully about that 
in case the cultural issues that that causes will be more detrimental than the, I guess, top line increase that you'll get for that short term? I think every business decision I've learned needs to be weighed up. There are pros, there are cons in everything, and there are consequences of everything. And I think the swift and agile business leader recognizes that, you know, on balance, you know, ultimately you have to make a decision and do something. We can't sit here and do nothing. So, you know, if you're going to get a sales manager in or sales team, and that's the right route, then you have to do it. But I think also one has to be agile enough and recognize when things aren't working. And I've seen, um, you know, I've been on small business networks and spoken to small business uh, owners who probably should have pulled the plug on something that wasn't working a lot earlier, who would keep pushing and pushing and it's obviously not working. So yeah, act quickly, get to minimum viable products, try something out. But if it ain't working, be swift and agile and, and, and do it differently. So David, something else and you might call this part of your marketing, it might be a passion, but I'm very interested. And, and this is actually, if I'm perfectly honest, a bit of a selfish segment for me, because having done over 100 podcasts, it is in my mind to write a book. And you've obviously written two. You touched on it earlier around how a long time ago, you wrote some chapters when you were running your charity. You've written two books as part of TCM. I, maybe it's the chicken and egg question. What came first? Was that something, was it the marketing approach that drove you to write the books? Was it a passion that then you used in the business? And I'd love to just find out, you know, to kick us off there, sort of, yeah, why did you do it? And um, take me on that journey that led to you writing, because it's a, you know, it's a tremendous achievement. Oh, thank you, Nick. Really appreciate that. I mean, so if, in mediation, there's no barriers to entry. So it's a non-regulated marketplace, no barriers to entry. And it's led purely by market conditions. You know, we, we might have a professional bodies and a couple of standards, but to, to all intents and purposes, it's market-led. So how do you manage in that free market environment and what's the strategy? Well, the strategy I felt was probably a thought leadership strategy to be able to to rise above what was becoming quite an increasingly crowded marketplace with no distinction in terms of who the best player in the marketplace was from the customer's perspective. So that was always on my mind. And I went to a conference and saw Kogan Page, who, who became a publisher, exhibiting and I kind of... Yeah, sheepishly wandered over and I've oh, got an idea for a book and um, managed to meet one of the commissioning editors at the, at the stand and we got on really well. And I felt I had a book in me. I thought the first book, Managing Conflict, did bring together a lot of what I'd done and, and what I believed in. And to an extent, I mean, I, this is probably me looking back with Rose Titting Classes, said it wrote itself. I don't think uh, my wife and kids would probably have agreed with that back in 2016, 2017, but it felt I had that first book in me and I had enough contacts and people who were in my network to be able to bring in the case studies in and, and all that good stuff and I loved doing it I didn't you know I wasn't the most academic kid at school did did, did my, my, my MBA which was where I sort of fell in love with sort of learning but I really did enjoy doing the first book and as these things do they kind of snowball a little bit so the first book was really successful managing conflict I'm just working on the second edition now and then, of course, you get the phone call some years later. Oh, would you be interested in doing a second book? And being as no doesn't feature really high on my vocabulary, <laughs> I wanted to say no, and it came out yes. Uh, there was reasons for that as well, other than just me not being able to say no. But uh, yeah, so the, the, the second book was around uh, culture. And I could see in the marketplace that there was a real desire to have an idea of what good culture looked like. But there were very few nouns in the marketplace around what good looked like. There's lots of verbs, cultural transformation, culture change. And there's lots of descriptors of bad culture, but very few nouns that described good. 
So I thought, well, can I codify and describe what I think good looks like using a noun rather than a verb? And what would that be? And I came up with transformational culture. And again, being a bit of a domain geek, I managed to get .com, .co.uk and .org for that. So that's okay. Well, there you go. That's handy. And then wrote the book and then found myself just falling in love with culture and change and, and, and everything around organizations. And, and I saw this huge connection between conflict resolution and culture change. It's often misunderstood. It's not recognized as being important. We all know it's there, but we don't really manage it. So there was huge connections. And um, yeah, that was this time last year. And uh, I'm working on another one now for The Economist called How to Disagree Well, which I'm really excited about. It's some really practical tools to help people disagree because goodness me don't we need to be able to do that a bit better so almost, almost like have you ever, have you read getting past is it getting to yes and getting past no yeah, is it the, similar was it the sequel to getting past no is that what you're you're writing next exactly that's roger fisher and william you're right absolutely and it's so those principle based and interest-based negotiation models I, I love those so yeah exactly that's that's right it's well there's a bit of a snowball effect i think nick it's fair to say <laughs> Fantastic, David. And me saying I'd like to write one, you're you're on to number three and version two of number one, I think puts me to shame. And I mean, there's an obvious question around, and I'm really keen to get advice for for anyone listening, because I think, you know, I speak to a number of people who like the idea of writing their own book, and whether that's with a publishing house or, you know, nowadays you can just write your, I'm sure you know, you know, you can do Amazon publishing yourself for better or worse. How did you make the time? Because obviously you run your own business. You know, you, you mentioned you've, you know, you've got your family commitments as well. Running a consulting firm is a full-on role and i imagine writing a book is not the sort of thing you can do in five minutes in between meetings like, how did you make the time to write a book because i i suspect that's what puts i mean it's what puts me off is where do i find the time david how, how did you do that and do it in a way that you know let you finish it run the business as well and you know do everything else at the same time i think it was risky and certainly the first one was risky because i don't think i'd built the infrastructure up necessarily to go off and sit and write a book i don't think i realized quite how much work it's probably one of those things that probably if i'd have known i wouldn't have done it but it's probably better that i didn't know so I'd, hopefully i'm not going to put anyone off because you know like i said it's a, a thing of yeah really great thing to do but there is a, a bit of planning and preparation probably would have gone gone down well as well but being one of just sort of chuck yourself in at it the publishers were good you know they were pretty tight on deadlines but flexible enough to give me some breathing space you know one of the phrases i've heard over the last 20 years which i absolutely hate is called working on the business not in the business i've never if someone could please explain to me what the heck that sentence is supposed to mean when you're an entrepreneur and a business leader it's a, it's the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard but probably writing a book was quite a good example of working on not in creating a, a an environment whereby i can begin to define and characterize what i'm trying to do what is it i'm about what's the business about so probably whilst I don't think that sentence makes any sense and I've never understood it ever, probably writing a book is as close as I've got to working on the business and trying to describe it and define it and think about it. And it was a really good exercise to go through because it helped to shape my thinking and gave me a lot of headroom to think, which, you know, as, as you'll know, it's, it's often lacking. So it was a bit of a luxury. Probably had I known what I was letting myself in for, I wouldn't have done it, but I've never regretted it and would definitely do it again if i had the time and maybe i'll ask this so I, so we just so we don't scare off all of our listeners or, or myself you've, you've obviously <laughs> written another one so you know to your point and and i think it's the same when you launch a business you, you probably wouldn't do it again if you knew what you knew now but obviously you you went back for number two and number three and and maybe the better question is how did you change your approach to enable you to create a book and run the business 
and I, I imagine not go through the pain you had for the first one. And the second one was more difficult because I didn't have that book in me. So managing conflict was a sort of compendium or an aggregate of all of the stuff that I uh, that I that I knew. Whereas a transformational culture really was very much more about a vision and a set of ideas that I thought about for what I think it could look like. So that was difficult. I think my colleagues, um, anyway, I must give give real acknowledgement to my one of my colleagues, Lisa Lisa J Baker, who's now the MD at the TCN Group. She was incredible in terms of the support that she provided. So we had planned for it. I knew I was going to go offline for a number of months while I was working on it. I also gave myself space in the in the week to to focus on the business by the end of the i couldn't do that i had to be i was down in my office at five o'clock in the morning and i'm back in getting into bed about 12 o'clock at night and it was like that that was that was quite solid for a number of weeks but for a while i was able to do both the business and the writing and um, my colleagues and the team were just phenomenal nick and it was if it hadn't been for them i don't understand try if it hadn't been for that i couldn't have done it and they were phenomenal well i I think you know, really good to hear and yeah, probably tells me, David, I will wait a few more years until I, I go to write my book because yes, I could, I think you've confirmed the challenges that I was concerned about of running a business and writing a book. Sounds like to do a good book and do it properly, you need to give it you know, dedicated time. So I will hold fire on that one. I'm sorry that I've put you off, Nick. I, it, was, it, was a, it was a really great thing. <laughs> I wouldn't say you've put me off entirely. You've encouraged me to delay it, David, I think is uh, having, you know, we've just had a child and I'm now encouraging people younger than me to delay. I think a book seems like the same. Maybe I should delay it for a few years. In that delaying period, there's actually a lot of preparation and planning you could be doing as well. So I think if you just see a book as, right, there's going to be a six-month window of just slogging it out to write a book, that's one way of doing it. Probably that's the way I did it. But there's actually, you can create the, 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 the skeleton, begin thinking about your chapter content, begin building the, the book. And to an extent, you suddenly find, you know, you've got 2,000 words here, 5,000 words there. And they start to pull it together, then it starts to almost again write itself. So perhaps that period of delay could be more about preparation rather than a, than, than a full delay. Now, I think I think really useful sort of closing point on that. And, and you're quite right. I mean, fortunately for me, I have a structure of a hundred and well, soon to be a hundred and three episodes that gives me uh, some of that. It also gives me a wall of. Gosh, I think it's if you give it 10,000 words an episode, whatever the maths is for that, there's a lot of words there. But no, I think really good advice. And I think the actually something really powerful from what you said, actually, if you want to do a good book, you do it properly. I think, you know, in today's world, as I, I mentioned around Kindle and Amazon publishing, it's easy to publish something, call it a book when it might actually just be a blog or an email or something else. And so giving it that time and dedication, particularly for listeners who have maybe left their consulting firm. So again, I I know listeners who have either retired or exited their consulting firm, you know, there is that project. So one last topic for today, David, and I think it might bring together our, our marketing story and conversations and the sort of the journey with the TCM group together quite nicely is actually your move across to the US. And I'd love to just understand almost what led to that. And probably as an extension to our conversation about marketing and sales, what's the approach you've taken with starting and growing that business has it been marketing led has it been you know something else how have you approached that and how have the lessons from that last 10 years informed what you're now doing in the US so i mean it began actually a few years ago i mean we've done we've done bits and pieces of work in the states naturally i mean some of the clients that 
who we've worked with have you know a global operations so you know it's not been completely new to the company but we we're actually invited to tender for a large tech company in the states and one of the questions they asked us you know what's what your, your exposure to the US to this point. And we did an analysis, I think out of the Fortune 500 companies, we'd, we'd worked with around 25 of them already in the States, some, some including Bloomberg and, and amongst others. So we already had a bit of a presence in the States. So it felt like we were building on that rather than starting from scratch. I looked at a franchise model. We've looked at franchising here in the UK and the UK just, it wasn't the right model as it is. We're not going to use franchising in the States either. But we looked at franchising and licensing and, and rejected that. But actually, we just met some fantastic people, as I've mentioned, Mary in Tennessee, Beth in, 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 in um, Washington. And so we're just using exactly the same. We're picking up and lifting and shifting the consultant model that we have over to the state. So a few of the things that we need to do, obviously marketing. So we've got a PR company who's for the last year have been looking to place content in U.S., journals and magazines so we've had some real successes there and been placing some content in the states uh, so that's been almost like a precursor to it so we have been building our pr you know, accessing data so we can uh, start start speaking to us companies obviously the dot-com platforms we're now building multiple languages into our dot-com platforms so that people can access our websites in different languages obviously with the us being one of those making sure our e-commerce facility can function in the US. So there's some basic housekeeping things that have to be done. But in terms of the actual bigger picture, it's unless I'm missing something, Nick, and I'm waiting for someone to say, look, you've really missed something here. But unless I'm missing something, it doesn't look like it's that difficult to do. You just need a bunch of people who've got some goodwill and can take account of the time zones do a few webinars, send out a few emails and whack up a website. But one of your listeners might say, I've actually missed something really important, but I'm not sure what it is. Well, David, I think, you know, I'm smiling. Obviously, our listeners can't see that. But I think what you've just described does work. And I think a challenge that I've heard for a lot of people is that they almost don't do that groundwork. So you touched on it, you know, you were seeding content before you landed and you were running marketing content in those regions. I think, where I've heard people struggle is where they try and take the, I guess, the brand of the UK and go door knocking in the US. Because yes, you know, if you're a big brand over here, that doesn't necessarily play over there. I mean, vice versa. Whereas I think, you know, what what you've described is the, the approach that we do with our clients. And you know, I'm, to, I'm funnily enough talking to a prospective client right now where we've we've recommended a very similar approach to what you've described for the reasons you've described, which is actually that content-led, expertise-led approach done in a way that's respectful to that country, that culture and done in advance of when you need the business starts to bear fruit. And I think that's where, to your point, you know, why I asked the question is I've seen a number who try the other way, which is a kind of parachute and, and land and expand. But if you don't have that content credibility, it's much harder, which might be why you're sitting there saying it's been easy for you so far. Yeah, I think it has, it has led it. And I think, you know, I talked about the, the company who had asked us to do the analysis of our exposure to the Fortune 500. We didn't win that work. I've got some lovely feedback, but one of the pieces of feedback was we weren't an American company. And what I've noticed, whether it's here in the UK or in the US, irrespective of globalization, and obviously globalization is under an enormous amount of pressure at the moment, we are seeing, and I've seen for many, many years, parochialism in, in procurement and parochial decision making, whether it's a you know a, a region in the in the UK, and I've started to see that in the US as well. And I think I couldn't expect as a UK company to go to the States and start flogging all of my services. It just wouldn't work. 
So building really good relationships with people in the States who understand the culture and the, 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 the nuances within the US marketplace is really important part of that strategy as well. So I wouldn't expect to just be able to pick up what I do or, or me and just land it over there. It's uh, I, I think understanding procurement and understanding the buying, the psychology behind buying, I would say is probably another thing that's just worth bearing in mind. I think a really good point. And I think you, know, you can tell me from your experience, it's probably broader than procurement as well. You know, the, the procurement obviously ticks the box at the end, but your end buyer obviously has to want to work with you. And a lot of that, like you say, it comes from, do they, you know, people like people like them for better or worse. And are they, you know, I've, I've had similar conversations where we've worked with US clients or clients wanting to go into the US. And, you know, it's always, do you know the US? Have you done a lot of work there before? And they're important questions to ask, but they're the ones that you need to solve through that content, you, as you said, because actually the fundamentals of what you do probably isn't that different. You know, we've seen this webinars that we've run have worked just as well in the US as they have in the UK. And I'm sure it's the same for mediation, but you need to present the image your client expects to see so that they will get you in the door in the first place, which is, I think, what you're saying. Absolutely, it is. And I think understanding that and understanding that that's important is really critical. And and also, not having too many expectations, that's why we rejected the franchise model. Because what I didn't want to do was people buying into a franchise and then putting them and me under pressure to generate leads. Whereas actually, if you have a, you know, so our consultant model in the UK, I expect all of my, this is, I mean, a, a slight aside, slightly late in the podcast, but, you know, obviously IR35, which we haven't mentioned, thankfully, but IR35, it's required us to have a much more adult relationship with our uh, consultants. And I think, I'm not going to say IR35 for the better because I don't expect to ever use those words in the same sentence, but it has meant that IR consultants are running companies which would traditionally have been seen as a competitor to the business. And I might have had those as conflict of interests. Now it's the norm. So what we're saying to our consultants here in the UK is go and set up your mediation companies, your conflict management companies, your trading companies. We'll trade with you as a limited company. But that's actually worked 99% of the time really well. Very, very few problems. But it's a model that translates across. So if I'm speaking to a partner in the States, run your own enterprise, set yourself up, get other sources of income coming in. Don't rely on the relationship with TCM to do that. And it puts them under little pressure and us under pressure. So everything just feels more relaxed. And it feels, yes, passionate and driven, but not as intense as I think franchising can be, which is why I didn't go down the franchise route. I think a really useful point, and you know, partly why I like these conversations being long, David, is you can circle back when needed and when there's something something to highlight. So, no, really good. And yes, I'm, I'm not going to draw you into a discussion around IR35, don't you worry. And, and actually, I think while we could talk for a lot longer, I'm mindful of what we said right at the start, which is I know you've got an afternoon of calls followed by packing and then Easter is upon us. So I'm going to bring us to our final questions. And these are ones that I ask every guest. And I always like to, I've been asking these now for a hundred episodes. Someone might say I should change them, but I love the similarities and the differences and you know the reading list that it's assembled for me. So the first one is, and you've touched on some books and so feel free to say these, but what is the book or books you found yourself giving to people or reading most often? You know, what would you recommend to our audience? Obviously, I wouldn't recommend my own books, Nick, because that would just be really quite ridiculous to do at this time. But <laughs> I think um, Amy Edmonton's Fearless Organisation, I think, is really uh, a very powerful text uh, in terms of thinking about psychological safety in the workplace and the importance of creating a psychologically safe space. I think that really lends itself to work around 
the systems and structures and processes and and so on within organizations so i really recommend that i think you know without creating too many i've got a library of books behind me but that is a good go-to but i think the fisher and uri the getting to yes i think it's interesting you referenced that earlier it is a really rock solid text in terms of helping us to understand how to negotiate everything's sales everything's a negotiation and if we can understand that but we can understand there are different ways of negotiating away from the positional or dogmatic models towards a interest-based model so i think that's a really useful book and and, and worthy read so those are some of the the texts i'd recommend no, i think two really good recommendations and, and david just because of what you do i'd be curious if you were telling a listener to read getting to yes or getting past no and and you can tell me the answer is both which one would you send them to which is more applicable in the real world getting to yes i think was a game changer in many senses because it set out this new negotiating model that i think changed the way we negotiate forever and what i really liked about that text was that it's applicable to both sides in a negotiation. So it doesn't try to say you're going to get an advantage in a negotiation by reading it and don't let the other person read it. What it says is give this to the other person in negotiation because the better equipped they are to negotiate using the same methodology. So there's something in that which felt to me very, obviously, very new and quite radical. So probably getting to yes would be the, the one just because of its slightly yeah, disruptive nature. No, I think a really good answer. And I, and I suspect given what you you do and, and your story around mediation, getting to yes is the goal. I think getting past no is obviously a slightly more there aggressive book, well. <laughs> um, which is, is not necessarily in keeping with some of the things you've described. So no, really good examples and good recommendations. Thank you. And so this next question is to give back advice. And it might be things that we've talked about already in the episode. It might be new things. And it's worth saying that while I try and keep this question similar, I've, I've tweaked it slightly, just knowing some of the things we've touched on in your journey. And so the question is, you've got three people in front of you. One is just starting out their career. Normally that's in consulting. Obviously for yourself, you start in the charity sector, but that's someone just starting out their career. Second is someone probably when you, you know, you started the TCM group. So someone who's just launching a a business might be in their 20s, might be in their 30s, but they're just launching that, taking that first step. And then the third person will be someone to our conversation around the sort of TCM V1 and V2, someone in that V2, they're scaling their organization, or maybe they've scaled it. And I'd love to just get your one piece of advice for, for each of those three people. Okay, thank you. So I think to the person who's just starting out, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because you don't, you don't want to sound trite, but you know, believe in yourself, believe in what you're doing. You, you, know, you know, others might not do so, but don't let the voices in your head that can't do this, won't do this, this won't work. Don't let them get in the way. You know, I've got, a, I've got three kids, and I can see when they're doing the maths homework, they can't do this, and then they sit, they can't do it. And you kind of go, so part of doing maths homework with the kids is saying you can do this. And of course, when they've changed their mindset and reframe the mindset from can't to can. Those, I don't have to sit and do the maths with them. I'm coaching them to change the mindset. So have belief in yourself. And there'll be other people out there, and the world is littered with them, who'll tell you you can't do something, you can. But when it doesn't work and fail, it will. Don't be put off by that. Keep going and keep keep believing in yourself. But don't be afraid of changing direction and being nimble and being agile. So that would be my advice to the person who's just setting out in the world, I think, Nick. Someone has just started their business and go for it. Well, well done. Congratulations. It's the best thing that you, you can possibly do. Expect challenges. Try to plan and prepare ahead. I mean, it's hard sometimes when you're running at a million miles per hour, trying to do everything and um, and, and then some with people's expectations. But buy yourself, I guess, I'm going, 
if I say the word work on the business, not in the business, I'll probably scream. I can't believe I would say, but give yourself some thinking time. The value of thinking, whether you're walking a, a dog or taking a stroll somewhere or find time for you to just think and thinking is so powerful. So just wherever that might be, try and squirrel yourself away for sometimes just to think things through and try to think ahead and i'm a, I'm a born optimist and optimists are great you know but i'm always late for everything and i always think it will work out in the end so all, also be honest when you're doing your planning you know be honest with yourself what could go wrong and how will i manage it when it goes wrong and, and, and try and design that in i guess if you're going into an organization and shaping an organization put people before process our organisations, whether they're con consultancies through to global corporates and, and, and public bodies, have had this nasty, horrible culture developing over the last 40 or 40, 50 years. We've got wrapped up with bureaucracy, complexity, process, policies, procedures for this, that and the other. And it's made us tangled up in a, in a web of red tape and complexity. And I understand the rules. I understand the regulations. But put people before process. Focus on your purpose, your people, the planet. Think about what's really important and then let the rules of your organization evolve, but don't let them shape everything in your company. Because I've seen organizations drowning in rules and processes and they've lost sight of what's important. What's important are our people and our, and our purpose. And I think someone is approaching the end of their, their growth period. Congratulations, you've made it. And you know, share the wisdom, share the knowledge, mentoring others, mentoring, mentoring young leaders and, 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 and aspiring entrepreneurs and go out and, and share what you've learned and share what you know and be generous with that I think would be uh, my advice to someone who's, who's approaching the end of that and I know I know so many people do and there are some wonderful mentoring schemes and business mentoring so I celebrate all of that so that'd be my advice is you know don't keep it in go and go and go and spill the beans <laughs> and go and help and encourage and inspire others as well fantastic david there's some really good advice there and i think you know a nice round off to the conversation we've had today so thank you so much for that and thank you for for your time today it's been fascinating hearing the story learning about yourself the journey with tcm mediation and how it can help people as well and i think you know for my listeners i'm sure they've taken a lot away of how they can think about it differently for change projects for organizations they work in probably even for their own consulting organization you know when you get to a certain size or you might tell me at any size you know this is valuable and the last question then for anyone who has enjoyed this interview wants to find out more about yourself more about tcm uh, and your satellite brands where where would you point them to where can they get in touch oh thank you nick so our, our the, the mothership website is the tcmgroup.com the tcmgroup.com I think tcmgroup.com is a debt collection agency, so eventually put the word that in front of it. Uh, you can get hold of Mail UK if I share an email address. Is that absolutely? Well, it, what I can do as well, David, is um, if you're happy to, I can put your email address in the show notes for this. So, I mean, you're welcome to say it out, uh, say it sort of now for the show, but we'll put that in the show notes as well, so people can just go there and, and find you as well. Uh, thank you, Nick. I really appreciate it. So it's david.little at the tcmgroup.com, and obviously social media, LinkedIn. Twitter, less active. I don't think I even have an Insta account, which probably is terrible given how much stuff we've talked about digital today. But LinkedIn, I'm pretty active on, so you can always track me down through LinkedIn and have a great conversation and learn from each other there. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for today. Thank you for giving your time, particularly on a busy day like today. I've really enjoyed this. Um, so all that's left to say is thank you and enjoy your break. And Nick, thank you. Well, a happy Easter to you too. And to obviously, thank you very much for, uh, for inviting me. I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, David. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.